Let's pray. Father, as we come tonight to your throne of grace, Lord, it's not a place where we simply decry that sin is on the rise. Lord, that's been happening. But, Lord, we're about to to say with our governing officials that these things that you said are wrong are okay. We're leading people into sinful lives. And so we pray, God, for mercy to fall upon our leaders. Lord, we pray for our congressmen, our senators, our president. Lord, my president. We pray that you would cause them to move away from these things being legislated and put them back into the hands of the people, Lord, where they belong, back to the hands of the pulpits and the parishioners. Uh, Lord, that is where morality comes from. It can't be legislated. And so, Father, we pray that the government would not act on these bills, but would rather see them as individual rights and let people fight them out amongst themselves. Uh, Lord, if it need be that the courts become a, a quagmire, Lord, to bog these things down so that they do not become law and thereby become more prevalent, just as taking prayer uh, out of our schools has done, we ask, God, that you would be gracious, that you would be merciful. But, God, that you'd cause us as your people to rise up uh, as the people in Nehemiah's day did, and they stood and they praised you and prayed to you and studied your word. God, put revival in the hearts of your people, your pastors, Lord, your pulpits throughout this land. And we pray that you would begin to work a new work in us, Lord. Revive us again unto repentance. Cause this nation to turn to you in this time, Lord, of uncertainty. May we stand on the one certainty the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and what you have told us about yourself and about the way you wish us to live through your word. We bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8 tonight. Nehemiah chapter 8. And so last time as we gathered together, as we looked at chapter 7, remember God isn't concerned. God is absolutely not simply worried about buildings and cities. God is concerned about people. And so this gigantic building project, which was God's project, this wonderful work that was accomplished in 52 days that Nehemiah and these some 40,000 citizens that joined in at different parts of time uh, to work on this massive project of rebuilding the city walls of Jerusalem so that the city and specifically the Temple Mount could be uh, protected and so that God could be honored. As we saw that last time, as God purposed for this construction project really to bring to, to fruition a place for God's people to gather together to meet, to declare that God is holy. Um, That's why we gather together. We gather together for the same purpose, to declare that God is who he says he is, that if he is who he says he is, which is what we believe, if he's given us his word, which he has, and he has spoken very clearly, that we want to hear what that is so that we know how to live, so that we know what to do, so that we know how to conduct ourselves, so we know how to talk to other people from his perspective, and so that our lives would be governed by the one who has made us. And so in Nehemiah chapter 8, we find the the principles of really studying God's word. We call it, in in our modern day and time, there's a specific genre of teaching, which I happen to prescribe to uh, and subscribe to, which is expository Bible teaching. That word expository simply means to bring out. It means to expose. It is the very same thing that if you were to find some place where maybe there's a city buried and you're going to excavate it, as you pull away the dirt, as you take away the things that obscure what is hidden below, pretty soon you expose the city and you can then tell what that city was like. You know where the granary was and you know where the wine vats were and you know where the houses were and where people slept and where they prepared meals and where they tanned leather. As you excavate it and you dig into it, if you get the picture, you begin to be able to tell exactly what that city was like. And in a very real sense, 
That is exactly what I hope to do, attempt to do, try to do whenever we gather together to study God's word. Because we're going to get here in verse 8 the very definition of how the Bible ought to be taught and how we ought to glean from it. As I've shared with you before, and it's super important that you understand this, your Bible was authored by the Holy Spirit, which is God. Amen? The Holy Spirit gave these words to men who wrote them down. The men did not write those words. They were simply the vehicle through which the words made it to parchment. Okay, does everybody get that? It's very important you understand this. So if God is speaking, how many correct interpretations of every passage do you think there are? I can tell you the number. It's a very small one. It begins with one, and it's exactly one. The Holy Spirit was attempting to communicate something exact with every single jot and tittle. Okay, every word, every space, every paragraph, every letter, all that was said that's included in God's word, authored by the Holy Spirit, not by men. So when they wrote it down, these things are suitable for us, for life and for godliness. So that as we study them, there is a message God wants us to get. It's not up to me to determine, well, I think it means this, and it means that to someone else, and it means this. The central interpretation of every passage, there is exactly one thing the Holy Spirit was trying to communicate. There weren't ten things. Now let me unconfuse you. There are all kinds of ways to apply that one thing, but that is very different than multiple interpretations. Because God said what he meant and meant what he said. But we can apply those things in all kinds of different ways. And so in this passage, we find this principle that we teach in Bible college that is actually a course that if you go to Bible college, you will have to take it. It's usually called Bible study methods. And normally the method that is taught is called inductive Bible study. And it's defined by a a simple acronym, O-I-A. It means to observe, to interpret, and to apply. That's all it means. Here in this passage, strangely enough, the city is defensible. The church is open for business. God's people are ready to receive. The first thing they do is hold a six- to seven-hour Bible study. We're not good staying 55 minutes. 50 minutes, we're okay. Six, seven hours, not so much. But I want you to see that these people were hungry for the Word of God. That they wanted to hear what God had to say. And so chapter 8 is really expository Bible teaching 101. And you go back to to chapter 7, it says, After the wall was finished, the doors and gates had been set, gatekeepers, singers, the Levites, the people were inside. They're ready for business. Verse 1 in chapter 8. And now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. When they say the book of the law of Moses, they're talking about the first five books of the Bible. This happens to be a proof text for those that say, well, the Bible was compiled in the, you know, the mid-800s or 900s A.D., It didn't exist prior to that. This passage actually verifies, and in fact, we now know archaeologically, and you can go to the Shrine of the Book, and you can view pieces of parchment of virtually every book of the Old Testament, with the exception of the Book of Esther, inside of that museum. You can see them. They are older than the time of Christ for certain. But what we have here is we now know that the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Those books were in existence in written form at the time of Nehemiah and Ezra in 500 B.C. And so the law was codified. 
We now know, because we have an Isaiah scroll, the entire book of Isaiah, it's some 53 feet long, it resigns in that shrine of the book. You, you can go there and look at the copy of it, the real one is for safekeeping, but it's a copy of the whole scroll. You can see that they took very seriously the word of God. We need to take very seriously the word of God, and this is my concern. We have gotten to where we are as a country right now because of lack of concern for the Word of God. Dr. Nelson Bell, the medical doctor, uh, his pen was pretty much as effective as his scalpel, but Dr. Bell, uh, for 25 years, was the chief surgeon at Love and Mercy Hospital in Kuangpu, China. And at the start of the Second World War, uh, he was kicked out. He returned to a private practice uh, in Asheville, North Carolina, and he moved across the street from his daughter, who was named Ruth, and her husband, whose name is Billy. Mr. Graham, to you. He wrote in his books, Convictions to Live By. He was a tremendous doctor. He was also a very wonderful Christian author. And he wrote in his book, Convictions to Live By, and I want to share this very short story with you. He said in that there, there was an operating room that was gleaming and multiplied kind of the perfections of the modern equipment. You know, whenever that's why showrooms are shiny and new. You know, you don't want to put a brand new car in an ugly showroom. Same thing with a hospital. It gives you a sense of comfort when you walk into a hospital and it's clean and sparkly and lots of new equipment and stuff. I can tell you from being in one that's not like that, it's very unnerving, okay, when they push you in in a lawn chair that has been, you know, duct taped to the top of a skateboard or something, you know. So I'm not sure. But our story goes like this. Not only was everything spotless, but it was cool. The air conditioning worked well, and the UV lighting that was provided was keeping the bacteria to a minimum. Two surgeons, along with the residents in training, were standing motionless in their pale green sterilized hospital gowns, their faces partially, partially covered by germ-inhibiting masks. Both the chief surgeon and his assistant were men of years of arduous training, and their experience they had earned them several certifications in a surgical specialty. They were members of a number of learned specialties and societies. The elder of two had recently been honored by his associates, been made chief of staff of the hospital, and just prior to that he'd been the president of a society of distinguished surgeons. The patient, draped in a sterile sheet and towels, was breathing deeply as the antiseptic took effect. And as the anesthesiologist looked on and nodded his head, the patient was ready. On the Mayo stands next to the tables and adjacent to the operating table itself were shiny arrays of instruments and every type of specific purpose, clamps and clips, retractor spreaders, scissors, sutures of all varying kinds to facilitate the operation. As the surgeon finished draping the patient, thoroughly prepared his body by scrubbing with antiseptic solution, and looking around, took up an instrument and laid that one down. He took up another and laid that one down. Took up another, laid that one down too. He went across the entire gamut of the instruments on the table, picking up each one and never using any of them. It was kind of a strange pantomime. The surroundings were perfect. The patient desperately needed the surgery, but the entire... Surgery consisted of meaningless motions. The surgeon made not a single incision. He didn't use the scalpel, didn't use the knife. Naturally, some in the room were disturbed and others confused, and many were exasperated. And after an hour, the patient was rolled out of the operating room to the recovery room. He was cared for until fully recovered from the anesthetic, and he was taken to his room where his relatives waited anxiously to see him. Flowers had been sent, messages given, evidences of their love and concern. Before long, it was obvious that the patient was no better. The same old symptoms reoccurred. There was still pain. There was still weakness. The patient wasn't a bit better. Hospital authorities were called to investigate, and the surgical staff met and discussed the case and a number of similar ones that had happened under the care of the same doctor. One night during a general staff meeting, the mystery again was under discussion. The interns, the residents, were encouraged to speak up. And one young resident, not considered the brightest of the bunch, ventured to speak up. And he said, Mr. Chief of Staff, I scrubbed in on a number of these unsuccessful operations. And there was one thing that I have repeatedly noticed. The surgeon doesn't use a knife. There's no incision. There's no bleeding. 
There's no getting down to the source of the infection. Nothing's removed. The patient comes in and goes out exactly as he was. But the chief surgeon in question, the one whose reputation was on the line, responded to these accusations with, the knife is old. It's full of imperfections. I don't trust the quality of its steel. I don't know who made it. I'm not sure exactly where it all came from. I see it as nothing more than an ornament for the table. Not necessary for the very diverse and confusing operations that we do today. The intern was subdued, left the room, and he was heard to mutter under his breath, those poor patients, they're still sick, and they leave the hospital just as they came in. Now, for purpose of analogy, your Bible declares of itself, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as division of soul and spirit, both joint and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart of man. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him who will and has always done it. Hebrews chapter 4 says. I say to you that that is exactly the problem with much of the church today. I don't take out the knife. You know, it's not pleasant. Can I say that to you? It's not pleasant to be the bearer of the unpopular position of actually believing what God's word says at times. It happens to me when I'm in marriage counseling. It happens to me on these difficult issues in our society, like gay marriage, like when someone who comes into my office and says we'd like to get married, but we're living together currently, and oh, by the way, we already have two children. And I say to them, I won't preside over your marriage until you move out with her, until you spend some time seeking the face of the Lord, and we see to it that the foundation that is laid for your marriage is honoring to God, because I stand in for him. Very uncomfortable. You see, you can't be afraid to take out the knife, because God's word plainly declares that do you not know that fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God? So am I really going to bless somebody's fornication? The answer is, unfortunately, no, for those who think it's okay. It's a very unpopular opinion. It's so unpopular that about 185 million people in this country think I'm wrong. About half the population. I just know what God's word says. So I take out the knife. Nehemiah and Ezra are about to take out the knife. Because in those first five books, there are a whole lot of restrictions on what the people can and cannot do and be pleasing to God. Amen? Haven't ever read the book of Leviticus? You want to go to sleep some night? Read the book of Leviticus. Okay? You want to bore yourself with endless, if he does this, then stone him. And if she does that, stone her. They were a bunch of stoners. (laughs) It was a good one, yeah. I thought so. But yeah, God was serious, and he spoke seriously to his people. He took out the knife, and he said, this is what you cannot do. Can I remind you that in the first five books of the Moses, there's not a whole lot of you can do this. It's mostly you can't do this. Why? Because inherent within us, we already know what to do, generally speaking. It's the what not to do that we struggle with. That's why Scripture is very plain on the what not to do's. If it doesn't say don't do it, then under liberty, you are pretty free to do those things if you pray and ask God that it's okay with him. And if he confirms those things in your heart, you're pretty good. People don't like to take out the knife. 
And so now they're gathered together at the water gate in this square in the city of what is now the city of David, south side of the Temple Mount. Notice, and so Ezra the high priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women. People often make the mistake of saying that, you know, the Bible was never taught to women. That's not true. There were separate places for the ladies to be in the synagogue, but they were allowed to hear the word of God just like everybody else. And all who could hear with understanding on the first day and of the seventh month. So anybody who understood and could hear was there. Now, we're not told exactly how large this crowd of crowd was, but I guarantee you it was thousands. There were 40-something thousand people involved. Many of them came from surrounding cities, but I'm guessing there had to have been thousands still left in the general vicinity. And then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning till midday. So that's from sunrise to noon, six or seven hours, maybe even eight, depending on what time of year it was. Before the men and women and those who could understand, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, now I want you to realize what's being said. They did not have a PA, okay? They had no amplification systems. They were not even in an outside amphitheater. They weren't standing there in a you know nice semicircle. They were scattered all over the hillside. You could have heard a pin drop. Because if there were a bunch of people talking, there was no way anybody was doing any hearing. They were attentive to the word of God. It doesn't mean we have to be completely silent, but in this case, they were in awe. This was really the first time, and for most of these people, it was more than a generation since they had last gathered together. Since they'd been in one place and somebody pulled out what we would call the Old Testament Pentateuch, and they said, now we're going to read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You, you, you see, to them, this was life. It mattered to them. And Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood that they had made for that purpose. And beside him, his right hand, Mathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Masijah, uh, at the left hand was Pedidiah, Mishael, uh, Malak, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalum. So he has these people on the right and on the left, and it appears from the names that they were highly likely representatives from each tribe. There was somebody up there. They also appear to be of the Levitical order. So chances are these were actually priests that were standing there with Ezra. And so they're reading the word of God. Family of God. The Word of God has to begin in your heart. It doesn't begin in my mind, in my sermon preparation. It doesn't even begin in the book itself. Because you won't get this book unless your heart wants to receive it. It won't make a bit of sense. You can have the most fantastic Bible expositor that's ever lived we could bring Chuck here on Sundays, and we'll bring Chuck Swindoll on Wednesdays, and we'll find some other Chuck to do the rest of the days of the week. We'll have a Chuck Fest, okay? <laughs> and ain't nobody getting nothing unless you want to hear it. And when your heart comes in with a presupposed idea, and you say, I know it says it, but I don't believe it, that is not someone who wants to hear what God's word declares. And that puts you at odds with God, not with me. I get it. There are times when I read, I, God and I have had some pretty fierce arguments at times. It's like, Lord, I don't want to tell them that. I'm not going to tell them that. Get somebody else to tell them that. And he says, I will. And I'm like, could we scratch that from the record? All right, I'll tell them. That thus says the Lord. You see, but I can say thus says the Lord, and it can be the one absolute accurate interpretation of the passage of Scripture. And if you come here and your ears are like this, because you're living in sin and you want to keep living in sin, then those words ain't going nowhere. But my job is not to determine which ones of you don't want to hear. My job is to take out the knife. 
and wield the knife. And if you don't need the knife, then the knife won't cut you. But if you get cut, you needed the knife. If you're okay in that area, the knife isn't going to do any cutting on you. Because you're okay, you're healed, you're fine. It's the amazing wonder of the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God to minister to you. You simply need to come ready to hear. That's what these people did. You see, a, a good interpreter, that's all I try to be. That's why you people laugh sometimes when I say, I'm just trying not to mess up God's Word. I mean that very seriously. It sounds kind of funny, but it is in fact my job to not mess up God's Word. He already said it. All I'm trying to do is pick it up and go, here's what it says. You see, any good interpreter needs to not question this. Doesn't mean that I don't have questions. It means I don't question this. What this says, I believe. And if I ever get to the place where that's not true, then I need to stop doing what I'm doing right now. And go, you know, do whatever. I'll probably become a park ranger. Because the birds will probably still listen to me. Because I can make so many of their funny noises. You, you see, I can consult a Greek lexicon. I can go through all these wonderful computer programs I have. I have thousands, literally thousands of books. I, I can go through those books, whether they're electronic or actual paper volumes, and hold them in my hands. And I can fuss around with those books all day long. And I can find ones that say one thing and find something that says another. But what I want to find, ultimately, is what this says. Now back to my analogy. It's just like a doctor. You see, I have to have a sensitivity to the Word of God. And when I handle it, it's not just words to me. Because I've studied it from cover to cover. When I read it, I read it in the context of itself. It's like a doctor who has spent his life or a nurse who spent her life studying medicine. And they've studied physiology. They know the human body. They know what that part of the body is supposed to look like and feel like and how warm. I'm stunned sometimes. A lot of times, especially nurses will come in and they'll just grab a spot on you and, oh, you're a little warm. It's like, what, you got a thermometer in your hand or what? You know, he's kind of that whole thing. It's like, oh, you're a little warm. You've got a little infection in there. The doctor spends his time feeling lumps and looking at bruises and touching them and getting the difference of the skin, the growth, the tumors, all the shapes and sizes and the way the joints are supposed to work. and all. They just touch it and they know something's wrong, yeah? That's what this does. I can tell you more what's wrong because when it's right, I don't need to talk about it. I can tell you when something isn't the way it's supposed to be because I know, number one, the Holy Spirit has already instructed people in their hearts to know the truth. And so what I now have is largely the instruction of what things look like when they're broken. And so just like a doctor... I can feel the lumps, I can feel the bruises. And in a biblical sense, you can kind of read what the Lord was trying to say, even between the lines at times, because you know what he's saying. You see, it would be very defective of me if I didn't spend time in my profession, amen? Uh, I wouldn't be a very good pastor if I just simply said, well, just get that page, we'll flip for that one. Ooh, that's bad too. No. Oh, I see that. No, I talked to them last week. They've got that problem. We'll skip that passage. Family of God, if I tried to do that, there's nothing in here I can teach. There's nothing left. So expository teaching means that you come with the mind to hear, and I simply wield the knife and let it do what it needs to do. And at times, the knife can be kind of humorous. You probably all had those medical things that you sit there and go, I can't believe I'm even doing this. This is ridiculous. And you've had those medical things. This is really, really, really serious. I need to make sure that I'm very attentive to these minor details. 
And so it was here. Ezra, in verse 5, opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above them. And when he opened it, the people all stood up. I'm not telling you to stand up, by the way, when we read the word of God every time. But they did then, out of honoring the word of the Lord. And in fact, in the churches of Scotland, you'll still see a ceremony called the Beatles Ceremony, and they will actually bring the word of God up the center aisle. And as they bring the word of God, the people all stand. And when the word gets to the pulpit, and they put the word on the pulpit, they all shout, Amen! comes likely from this passage of Scripture. The Word of God is being presented. We're standing. We want to receive it. And they recognized the authority of the Word of God over their lives. They respected the book. They stood in reverence and in silence to hear the Word of the Lord. You see, this is our source of authority. So we need to accurately divide the Word of Truth. Verse 7, he goes on, and also Yeshua and all of these men, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. Notice, please, with me, verse 8, there are these three components, observation, interpretation. So I need to look at the text. I need to be ready to receive what it says. I can't observe without study. Amen? Everybody get that? So the first thing that we're doing is we're simply reading the text. What does it say? As Charles Stanley Chuck Swindoll, Chuck Smith have all said at times, Chuck to me personally, said, I don't even try and teach a passage of Scripture unless I've read it 50 times. I have modeled that. Generally speaking, that's true with me as well. I don't even know how many times I read it. You probably see me sitting over here and I pick up my Bible. I've already read it dozens of times. So it's like, oh, what's that one thing, you know? So observing the second thing, we need to interpret what it says. Notice verse 8. And so they read distinctively from the book of the law, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Mark it, underline it, that is all a pastor is supposed to do who teaches. That's it. There are no other things that a pastor should attempt to do with God's word except for this very concise definition of expository teaching. They read distinctively from the book. You ever noticed how I change intonation and volume and do all kinds of crazy things when I'm reading God's Word? I will even throw in there maybe something that's false because you're sitting there looking at it. I'm trying to jog your mind. I may actually ask you a question. I may give you some goofy detail, something to stir your mind to look at the text for yourself and say, what does it say? And in this vein, that is what we like to call the who, what, the when, where, the why, and the how. We want to look at what is said and then observe in that text what it says and then interpret through the lens of the actual text itself. I don't want to put anything in. I don't want to introjete the text. I want to exegete the text. I don't want to put something into it that isn't there. I want to pull out of it what has been said, and that's all. So when someone says, did you properly exegete the text, all it means is to take out. That's it. It's like Chinese food. Take out. You take it out. You don't prepare it, right? When you go to China, you don't go to the restaurant, you walk into Chang's House of China and whoever it is, and you go, I'd like some Peking duck and some orange chicken. And then you slip around behind the counter and you start whacking up meat and doing the walk flip thing. No, it's takeout. They do that for you. The Bible is takeout. Okay? You take out what is prepared. A lot of people don't want to take out what's prepared. That's why we are arguing over some of these things in church. That's why churches are going, well, we don't want to teach that anymore. We don't want to call sin, sin. Family of God, you don't get to prepare it yourself. It is take out. You exegete the text. You simply interpret what God has said. That's all. And then what I do is I say, here it is. Notice What it also says, gave them the sense, read it distinctively, make sense of the text is another way to look at it. How do I do that? I have all those language tools. I actually have the original documents of the entire Bible. Okay, I can look up the actual manuscripts used 
to write this book. I can go, hmm, well, the majority text says this, the revised text says this, the Septuagint says this. And I can look at what's said in the Greek. If it has an Aramaic copy, I can look at that. If it happens to also be in Hebrew, I can look at that. I can even look at German Bibles and Latin Bibles. I go, well, they kind of got this word and that word. But all I'm trying to do is find out what God said through the Holy Spirit. That's it. And then help them to understand the reading. That is what a good Bible teacher does. I simply interpret it, and I try and give you something. Now do you know why I told the story about Dr. Bell and read from his book? Now do you know why I used the example of a doctor or a nurse? I'm trying to help you understand what's being said. That's what expository teaching is all about. It's to read it, to determine what it actually says, and then help you understand it so that you can apply it. That would be the third thing. Observation, read it. Interpret it, what does it say? Application, what are you supposed to do with what you have now heard? That's it. Not, well, I sure wish it said that. Or bring up absolutely every contrary position known to man on every subject in the Bible. That's why when somebody comes to me and they say to me, well, you know, so-and-so says, I immediately discount what they said. Here's why. If they had come to me and said, you know, the Bible says, I'd be going, it does? But if they tell me so-and-so says, including Billy Graham, including Pastor Chuck, including Charles Stanley, including everybody else who's ever written a commentary, if they say somebody else says, and I can look at my Bible and do three very plain things, read it, interpret it, and apply it, and I disagree with them, I'm sticking with what God showed me. Simple. Not because they're necessarily wrong, but because for what God's called me to do, He hasn't called me to regurgitate to you what someone else has said. He's called me to rightly divide the word of truth myself and deliver it to you as best as I can. That's it. That's what Ezra did. That's what Nehemiah prepared. They simply translated what the word said. They took the scripture and put it into terms that people could understand. And it's so important. You know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, well, he tells jokes. Yep, I do. I tell jokes. I make up my own words at times. I do all kinds of things. But they're all for a singular purpose. That singular purpose is to help open your minds to help you think about what this says. And as I believe it says what it says, transmit that to you and help you be able to take it and then do something with it. Because I don't want you to be a hearer and not a doer. Amen? So it doesn't do me any good to simply tell you about it. It's just like history. I can tell you about history. I know a lot of history. I've studied tremendous amounts of history. I have lots of history books. I can tell you about weird tidbits of history. But I haven't actually lived in history. So I don't know those things from first-hand experience. They're second, they're third, they're fourth, they're tenth-hand information. I want you to hear from the Lord so I help you get this process so you can go observe, interpret, and apply. So that you walk away from church and from the experience of reading God's word with a hunger to study it for yourself so that you are Bereans. I just hopefully make it something that you can so uh, discern and understand that when you walk away from the experience, you go, man, I need to know more of this. Jeff's nuts. I can't rely on him. I'll go study it for myself. You get why I do those kind of things. It breaks things up. Somebody says, why do you throw it? Well, because sometimes you're all sitting there and I'm like, you guys, you guys are going to spit fire or something at me. I don't know. You know, you got that. After you've had enough, it's kind of like your children. You can only beat them so much and then you've got to be nice to them. It doesn't do any good after a while. You know, a whooping every once in a while is a good thing. But you have to also apply the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness. Amen? So sometimes you've got to break those things up. The mind can only take in what the seat can endure, as one wise guy once said. You see, the opportunity here is for you to glean for yourself what Scripture actually says. And so I don't make things up. 
you want to challenge me, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. You're going to come into my office. I'm going to take out my Bible, and I'm going to say, here's what it says. I fall back on God. You got an argument, you got an argument with God, not with me. Now, if it's something I said in, in maybe applying it, that might be debatable. But the basic truth, it's right there. It's where I got it from. It says what it says. It says it in context. It says it in the timing. It says it in the actual wording of what's said there. Not making it up. There it is. Got a problem with it. You can come talk to me, but I'm not going to argue with you. I'm simply going to go to the passage and go, I think that says exactly what I said. (laughs) Then we have problems with the Lord. And that kind of is a good thing, because you can talk to him, and he will listen. Sometimes I don't have anything else to say. I had a guy a couple of years ago that just wanted every, like every week, I want to talk to you about Calvinism. I don't want to talk about Calvinism. I've written about Calvinism. I don't want to talk about Calvinism anymore. And he finally said, well, I want to talk about Calvinism. I don't want to talk about Calvinism. Calvin wrote Calvinism. God did not write Calvinism. Well, yeah, he didn't. No, he didn't. I said, you find me Calvinism in your Bible. He looked for about three weeks, and he came back. And he said, you know, it's not there. I said, yeah, I know it's not there. That's why I told you I didn't want to talk about it. In Jesus' name. And then we see the people applying it in verse 9 here. It says, And Nehemiah, who is the governor, and Ezra, who is the priest and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people and said to the people, This day is holy, the Lord your God. Do not weep and do not mourn for all the people when they had heard the words of the law. That's what they were doing. They're going, man, my life is undone. You know what? Sometimes people come to church and they weep and mourn. It's okay. It's all right every once in a while to go, you know what? Pastor Jeff was not funny today. Yeah, God's Word's not always funny. I I do my best to try and lighten the burden occasionally, but the fact of the matter is it confronts me too. You know who I have to preach to more than you? Me. I have to listen to myself. I have to write these notes, then read these notes, then restudy these notes, then I mark up the notes that I wrote, then I go and talk to myself and talk to God about the notes. So trust me, I'm sick of me too. (laughs) For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. They were confronted. There were things that were going on in their lives that were wrong. They came back from Babylon, Babylon like Babylonians. They were acting like Babylonians. They were talking like Babylonians. They were not in the spirit. They were in the flesh. And when they heard the word of the oh, oh, man. Woe is me, I'm undone. It happens. I love what Nehemiah says next, and I say this to you. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send the portions to those whom for nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen? You you see, God tells us what's wrong in our lives because he knows it hurts us. It destroys, it kills, it maims, it's not good, it's not right. And no amount of our government saying something is okay that God's word says is wrong. Do you realize that cussing is wrong? We're going to see it in two weeks. Unclean speech is wrong. So sitting around, listening to it on television, and for our government to say, well, let's just have more cussing and more nudity and more vile stuff going on on TV. After all, we've progressed. It's wrong. It should bother the body of Christ. And when it doesn't bother the body of Christ, I say to you, we're living in Babylon. That's why it doesn't bother us. So we pray, we mourn, we weep, we go, God, I'm so sorry. And then we change the direction we're going so we can go and rejoice in the Lord and let His joy be our strength. Because you're not going to have joy when you're in sin. Do you hear what I said? You will not have joy in sin as a child of God. You'll hate yourself. You'll despise yourself. You'll hate things about your life. You'll hate other people. The joy of the Lord's your strength. You rest in that joy. 
And so the Levites quieted all the people. Be still, for the day is holy. Don't be grieved. He says, yeah, we just figured out what was wrong, but you know what? His grace is sufficient. Amen? Now, they had not yet met Messiah, but the Old Testament taught the same basic thought. If you turn from your wickedness, just as First Chronicle says, pray, ask the Lord to hear from heaven, and then do what he says and return to the Lord, he will restore his strength to you. It's a recipe for joy. But continuing in rebellion, it's a recipe for a lack of joy. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and rejoiced greatly because they understood the words that had been declared to them. Hallelujah. They understood the words. It made sense. All of a sudden they're going, okay, I get it now. The Lord told us not to do those things because it destroys us. It tears apart our country, tears apart our kids, destroys our lives. He knew what's best. That's why he said those things. He did not say to Eve, don't eat of that tree because the tree was the best thing in the world. The tree was the worst thing in the world. That's why he said, don't eat of it. Wasn't trying to, well, don't, you know, this is my tree. Can't have any. These are my fruit. It's God's tree. Wasn't that at all. He knew the moment she took a bite of that apple, she was dead, literally. She was dead. She would taste death for biting that stupid apple. Or pomegranate, or whatever it was. See, that's where you get to arguing with people. Well, I think it was a watermelon. <laughs> you know, in the Greek, in the Septuagint, it says. It's like, who cares? That's not what we're trying to worry about here. The basic thing is, don't do what God says not to do. Real simple to interpret Scripture. Yes, the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Got to add the extra S on there. Because sometimes we're not too bright. Amen? The joy of the Lord is our strength. And what it does and what it results in is the last seven verses here. And now in the second day. So here's the second day of this two-day revival. The heads of their fathers' houses, of all the people, the priests, the Levites, were gathered around Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. They're all going, now tell me more. Give me some more. I want to know what it says. Because you know what? You're right. I was sitting there feeling terrible, and this Levite dude came over and put his hand on me, and he says, it's okay. I understand that you're a sinner. Me too. Don't do it anymore. Stop doing that. And when you quit doing it, then go eat of the fat of the land. Man, did I feast last night. Because I was set free. Because once you're out from the bondage of sin and death, what happens? He who has the Son set free is free indeed. Amen? So you walk around the joy of the Lord. Yeah, I was a crack dealer yesterday. Yes, I was had this relationship or that relationship. But you've been set free by Christ not to go sin some more, but to not sin anymore. And then you can walk in joy and walk in strength and be blessed. That's where the people were, and they found written in the law what the Lord had commanded Moses. Can I remind you? The Ten Commandments ain't all that much fun if you're a sinner. Really? Can't steal? Can't covet anything? Can't covet my neighbor's wife? Can't do any of that? Nope, can't do any of it. What a bummer. It's like half my life is gone. I was a professional coveter. Hate that. That the children of Israel should dwell in the booths on the seventh, the feast of the seventh month. They said the feast of tabernacles is coming. Do you know what the feast of tabernacles was? It was when they remembered that they had been set free from the bondage of Egypt. The feast of tabernacles. They would go make these funky, and they still do this in Israel. They make these funky booths. They take some sticks and they prop it up, and they go live outside of their house. You know why that is? It's the same reason you go camping. You get there and you're completely grunged out after a week of camping and you've got scum on you that will not scrub out no matter what you do. And the first time you take a hot shower, you go, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> it's the same deal. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, they would make these booths and they would live in them. And they're going, man, I'd rather live in a booth than in slavery. You get it? It's all it was. I'd rather live in a stinking booth underneath a piece of rug with some sticks then go back to the slavery of sin. 
That's why they read the book of the law. And then they come to the Feast of Tabernacles. They said, now you can go celebrate. You're back in that freedom that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, go out onto the mountain and bring in the olive branches. Bring in that symbol of peace and put it in your home. The oil of the olive trees, that symbol of the Holy Spirit, the myrtle branches, the cleansing, the palm branches, the praise of the Lord, the branches of the leafy trees, that shade that the Lord is in the heat of the day. And they would bring it and make those booths as it was written. You see what all these things were? They're saying, man, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm cleansed by the Lord. I'm washed free. I'm made new. I'm in the shade of God's presence. You see, it was very symbolic of people who were walking in the goodness of God. And then the people were went out and brought them and made themselves booth, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God. They were everywhere, but nobody was in their house. Not one person was enjoying the walls of their own home that they had just finished. They were all back outside. You know why that is? Because it is a real good thing to remember from where you have fallen. Don't ever forget that. Because you're about that close to being there again without the Lord. And apart from His setting you free from bondage and bringing you out of your Egypt, you'd still be in bondage. Don't forget it. There in the open square by the gate of Ephraim, and so the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made their booths and sat under the booth since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day the children of Israel had not done so. You realize how long that is? That's almost 600 years. They've been walking in sin. They've been living apart from God. You see, the Babylonian captivity was a definite period of time, but they went into captivity of sin long before that. Matter of fact, when Joshua came into the land, how many spies declared that it was even possible? Two. It's Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else, man, we ain't going over there. Not going to do it. I know God said to, but I'm not going to. And there was a very great gladness. You see, when you return to the Lord and His ways, there's a very great gladness. It's like, Lord, thank you. And also day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your blessings. Lord, we thank you that as we walk in this life, Lord, we have been set free. God, thank you for that. Thank you for repentance. Thank you for your word, Lord, as we study it. Help us to add nothing to it, but to take everything from it. Lord, help us to rightly divide that word of truth. Help us to use the knife, God. It's a necessary part of studying your word, Lord. It does cut at times. Lord, it helps us discern between truth and a lie. Lord, it gets down to the nitty-gritty of the things that often trouble us. Bless us, Lord, as your people. May we have a hunger like your children did, Lord, as they stood for six, seven, eight hours and listened to your law. Lord, help us to have that kind of hunger for the things of God. We bless you. We praise you. And all God's people said... Amen. So be it.